Good evening, everybody. How are you? Good. You can take a seat. Hang out. My name's Alicia, and I'm one of the pastors here of Adult Ministries, and I'm excited to hang out with you guys tonight. So we're gonna have we're gonna have fun. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, thanks for the response. That makes me feel all warm and fuzzy inside. Um, do you guys make like making decisions? Neither. And I don't. <laughs> I'm not one of those people who likes to do that. Um, and a great example of that is the age-old question we ask after we leave church. And what is that? What's for dinner? What do you want to go eat? And so if you're like my husband and I, I say, you pick. And he goes, I always pick. You pick this time. <sighs> okay. And then I finally come up with something, and what do you think he says? I don't want that. <laughs> and I say, that's why I, don't know. that's why I don't pick. And that's one of the reasons why I don't like making decisions. And I think another reason is we just make so many decisions in a day. You know, I don't even think we're aware of how many decisions we make. And I was actually curious about how many decisions we make that I looked it up. And how many decisions do you think we make in a day? A couple hundred? 35,000. In one day, I had to look at it again just to make sure it wasn't like in a week. And do you want to know how many decisions children make in a day? 3,000. <laughs> so that probably shows us why they're so happy and we're really grumpy sometimes because we're making all these decisions. And so, I mean, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're in a series called King Me. And in the past month, we've been talking about power and how it's used. And today we're going to just be talking about how power is used in decision-making. And you may think, well, you're talking about like leaders who make these positive or negative decisions. And that's true. We are talking about that. And actually, Brad's going to come up later and we're going to have a discussion about that. But I don't think we really realize the power we have and the decisions that we make sometimes and how that can affect us and other people. I mean, especially, especially negatively, like... Um, a decision I may make that may just affect me is that piece of cheesecake I had. And for some reason, just that one piece gave me five more pounds. But, you know, that's just affecting me. But then we have these decisions that we think we're making that sometimes we may think are a good decision and it ends up affecting other people negatively. And so um, I think about that and I say, then why does God give us free will to make 35,000 decisions a day? Like, we're messing it up. We can hurt people. Why would he give us that? And I was reading um, a quote by C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, and I think he explains it well. He says, If a thing is free to be good, it is also free to be bad. Why, then, did God give humans free will? Because free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. And that brings us to our story today, how free will can go wrong. And it's a story about David. And whether you've read the Bible a lot or maybe you've never even opened up the Bible, most of us have heard about David. I mean, one of the reasons is he beat Goliath. So we know about that. And it's this awesome story of what God did through him. But the story today that we could have possibly heard too is where David's on the other end of the spectrum where you could say he possibly royally screwed up. And it involves a woman that most people don't name their daughters after. 
and rhymes with Tashiba. <laughs> so why don't we open our Bibles to 2 Samuel 11, and you can go into uh, our YouVersion app, too. It's in there on um, your phones if you have the app, um, and all the scriptures in there, too. But why don't we open it up there and read about this decision that kind of went wrong. So in chapter 11, verse 1, it says, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. Whoa, a lot just happened in five verses. (laughs) Man, it went from just one little thing to really bad. (laughs) So let's kind of unwrap this a little bit. So it says in the first verse, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab. And then a little later on it says, but David remained in Jerusalem. So why is this odd? Because you may think, why do do you have to um, say that? Well, this is out of character for David. So David was known for going on the front lines of the battlefields. He, I mean, he beat Goliath. He was the one who's like, I'm going to take Goliath on. He wasn't even king then, and he's leading people like God's going to do it. He was always on the front lines. And in this time also, kings were meant to lead their people into battle and be on the front lines. So when it says David stayed back, this is not David. He's isolating himself. He's not normal David. And so that's something we need to keep in the back of our minds as we're reading this. So verse two goes on to say, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. Now this doesn't sound like anything big, but there's so much more in just this one verse than we even know. So to help you understand this scenario, It was in the evenings that women would cleanse themselves. It pointed it out in these first five verses from their time of the month. (laughs) They would go and they would, it was like a sacrificial, sacrificial like cleansing of themselves. And they would do it in the evening. The reason they would do it in the evening was one, their baths or where they cleanse themselves were on their roofs or like in their courtyards because that's where the water would get warm. The sun would hit the water and it would make it warm for them. But also, they say that once their uncleanliness was done, they needed to cleanse themselves on the new day, and the new day started in the evening, okay? David knew this. David knew that in the evening, women went out there naked to clean themselves, okay? The next thing we need to remember in this, where it says he was on the roof of the palace, let's show a picture of the palace. So that big building on the top is the temple, Right below that, those bigger buildings are where David would stay. That's his palace. So everything underneath there um, is everybody else. So David can see everything from where he's at. So 
What we wouldn't know from just the sentence that says, one evening David got up from his bed and walked around on his roof of the palace, is David was on his roof of the palace in the evening because he was looking at naked women. Yeah, that's like, oh, I wouldn't have gotten it that from that line. But that's what was going on. And something we need to point out is when some of us have heard this story, we have heard like, well, Bathsheba lured David in. She shouldn't have been, you know, out there if she knew the king was out there. Remember at the beginning of the story where I said, when David usually goes off to war, Bathsheba's husband was one of the people in the war. So she's assuming David's there too. Because it's not normal for the, for the king to stay back. So she's assuming he's there. And also it points out she was doing her ceremonial cleansing of what women were supposed to do. So she was not aware of anything that was going on. So we need to understand that Bathsheba is not really in the wrong here. Um, David kind of is. And let's, can we put that picture up once more? So David is in his version of pornography right now. And what's that big building on top behind him while he's doing this? The temple. That's hard. He's just not making some good decisions right now. So David could have stopped right there and confessed and said, you know, I made a bad decision. God, this wasn't right. Um, But instead, he sends a servant because he's enticed by this. He's enticed by wanting to know about this beautiful woman and wants to know more about her. And so he sends a servant to find out, and he says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Why do we name half, name half all these people? Can't we just say Bathsheba Jones? No. We don't know her last name. So you name um, the, the husband and the dad. So let me give you some context on that. These two people, Bathsheba's dad and her husband were, one of da- were two of David's mighty men. There were 30 people in David's mighty men. They were like the knights of the round table to David. They were always on the front lines fighting with him. So these are people who are close to him. They're like his best friends in a way. Like they're just really close. It's not people that David doesn't know in an intimate way. So, and also... If you go on to read chapter 15, you find out that Bathsheba's grandpa is David's, one of his closest advisors. So when the servant says, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite, he's like, dude, you know her dad, her, her husband, and her, her granddaddy. <laughs> you know all of them. This isn't some random woman. So you'd think he'd be like, oh man, I just defiled this woman with my eyes and it's my best friend and like these close people I know I need to turn away and run but do you think he does that no sadly it goes on to say he told the servant to go get her she came to him and he slept with her so now David is at bad decision number two so I need to point out something else here in this time women did not have rights Okay, so David is the king. He has all the power in the world. Bathsheba is a woman. She has zero power. So when a servant comes to her and says, the king wants you, she has to obey and go, or she could be put to death. So she, she goes, and not knowing what's being asked of her, and the thing that's hard here is that... Um, she did not have the choice in what was about to happen to her. 
You have to understand that. She had no choice in it. And in this situation, it is very clear that David had the power and he abused it and her in some way. So as a woman, (laughs) I wonder what she was thinking. She, there's this man who has been called by God. He's led this nation into awesome things. Her family is close with him and loves him, and he's defiled her. And so does she think, can I say anything? Because I have no rights. If I said something against the king, could I be killed? Could I ruin a nation by bringing out this this ugly thing? Did I do something wrong? Is God for me? She probably racked her brain of a bunch of things. But in this moment, in this deep moment of pain, it's probably the biggest pain this woman has ever felt, probably. And you would think, man, it could not get any worse. And then she finds out she's pregnant. Have you ever been in that moment in your life where a circumstance happened beyond your control that hurt you deeply and wounded you? And you wondered, God, are you really good? Are you really for me? Did I do something wrong for this bad thing to happen to me? I've, I've totally felt like that multiple times and wondered if it would even get better. And I think God can handle that. I think that you can have a really deep faith in God and still question him. And he wants that because he prefer you to question him than to not be in relationship with him. So Bathsheba sends word to David that she's pregnant. And David has an, oh, you insert the word moment. (laughs) What's done in secret and isolation could be brought to light. And now it just doesn't involve David looking at some women. Now it involves David and Bathsheba and a baby and a husband. So it's gone, it's gone out more. So what does David do? Does he come clean? Nope. He's like, I got to hide this. (laughs) I'm the king. This will not look good. So David goes on in the story where he brings back um, Uriah, her husband, from war. They're in the middle of war. He's like, come back, bring him back. So he brings him back and he's like, you know what? Uriah's been at war. He's going to need some loving from his wife. So they'll, they'll be together. So he's like, Uriah, go be with your wife. Go be with your wife. And Uriah is the first person in the story who makes a good decision. In a moment of solidarity, he knows that these men he's been fighting with can't come back and be with their, their wives, so he's not going to be with his wife either. He's going to still stay out there. That's a good man. He, so much that he doesn't want to be tempted by his wife that he stays at the palace, so he doesn't even go to the house. He's like, no, I'm not going to go there because it's been that long. It would be hard. And so you think... David's like, oh, what am I going to do? Oh, so the next day he's like, let me give him some alcohol. Here, Uriah, let's get drunk. <laughs> Drink some. So your you know, senses are down. You're really going to want to sleep with your wife now. And dude didn't. That is a good man. He's like, no. And so he holds back. He stays at the palace. He doesn't do it. He doesn't fall into the schemes that David's trying to create. And so David sends him back to war and pretty much 
gives him a letter to give to his general to pretty much say, hey, put him on the front lines where he can die. And he kills him. So David uses his power again to practically rape a woman, and then he uses it again to kill her husband. David's doing well. Isn't this a fun story? (laughs) But then, insert God. Not that God wasn't here the whole time, but now God's going to make himself known. And that's what I love about him. In verse 27, it reads, But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. God is not happy with this man. He has placed in power and given all this influence to. He's abused it. If you look in Luke 8, 17, it says, For there is nothing hidden that will not be disclosed, and nothing concealed that will not be known or brought out into the open. And so we see this in chapter 12. God sends a man named Nathan. Now, Nathan was in David's life as a mentor. David's this king. When you're king, whatever you do, everyone's like, yeah, you're okay. That's not wrong. That's not bad. Yes, you're great. Keep doing that. You're the king. I'm not going to tell you no. And Nathan's like, yeah, no, I'm not that person. (laughs) I love you too much, and I love God too much to not speak into your life and who God's called you to be. Do you have anybody like that in your life? And so pretty much God reveals to Nathan everything David has done. And Nathan verbatim just spats it off to him. If you were David, what would you be thinking in that moment? (laughs) Well, finally, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, David confesses, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan goes on to tell him that God has taken his sin away and there will be consequences. And you can read about that. There's a bunch of details that you can read in chapter 12 that you'll just be like, oh my gosh. But what what I want to take away from this is that God loves us enough and David enough to bring us out of these shameful, bad decisions. And when we look at like God calling us out or bringing things to light, it's like, oh, because God's mad at us. And so he has to bring it to light. No, God loves you enough that he doesn't want you sitting with this heavy burden that's not of him, that he'll bring it out for you if you're not willing to, so you don't have to hold that and you can be free of it. And you know what? He also brings healing to Bathsheba. To be honest, there's some more brokenness that happens in her life. This woman gets it hard in her life, and you should read about it. But some commentaries point to the Proverbs 31, um, the, the woman that, they, that is written about, that's like this woman I feel like will never aspire to be, as being Bathsheba, that he wrote it about his mom, who was Bathsheba. And so this woman that I talked about who I said at the beginning, people won't name their daughters after, is this woman that all these women want to aspire to be. And you didn't even know. So from far away, what looked like a story of a woman who lures this God-fearing man, it ended up being quite the opposite of that. And I want that to challenge us in how we view events and scenarios that we see in our world today. And even in the things that maybe we've dealt with on a personal level, to know there's probably more to the story than we think. Why don't you guys join me in prayer? Jesus, I come to you, and I'm just grateful, Lord, that you are in the midst of every bad decision, Lord, that you can redeem, that you can break us free of the things we mess up sometimes, God. And you can bring healing to the brokenness that has been inserted on us, even if it wasn't our own decision, God. And I'm just grateful for that hope we have in you. 
And I pray, Lord, that we would just, um, I don't know, we would just seek you more in these different scenarios um, of our life and give you the con- more control in our decision-making. So it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Alicia. As I'm thinking about this, I think that's the first time I've heard the story of David and Bathsheba told from a woman's perspective. <laughs> yeah, it's probably about time, right? <clears throat> I think it is. I don't, know how, I don't know how often the men who tell the story get it right or wrong, but I appreciate you uh, giving us that perspective. Uh, we, have, we have sort of uh, laid things out during this series where we're going to tell a story from the Old Testament, from the life of King David or mm-hmm. King Saul. And then, uh, and then try and wrap around at the end of that and say, well, what does that look like for us? How do we engage this story for ourselves in this generation, <coughs> excuse me, and through other scriptures? So <coughs> that's what we're going to do here for the next minute. But let's take a break before that. Okay. Be- because you had a big day today. <laughs> I'm going to get something to drink. Okay. <laughs> you had a big day today. Tell them about hey, that. you did too. <laughs> yes, I did. That's we right. We had the break-free run today. <coughs> did anybody here go to the break-free run today? Raise your hand. Yay! We had some of, a, some, some of our Lake Saders help out, some ran, I ran, kind of ran. You ran? <laughs> you did six miles in an hour. I did six miles in an hour. That's amazing. Yeah, right? Thank, well, thank you. <laughs> I didn't know if I'd be able to stand up today, but <laughs> that was my husband and my kids and Brad and I. And my son, if you didn't see the picture, my oldest was down here totally screaming, having a tantrum that he could not go in the bounce house during that picture. I'm like, just take the picture. Just take the picture. <laughs> Hurry and take the picture. <laughs> I want to go in the bounce house too. I, I didn't throw a tantrum. So, uh, and, that, and that's interesting because we're doing this race today and it was all about uh, helping to overcome sex trafficking in this world mm. and uh, trafficking children, trafficking girls and it's really the same thing. That's a power relationship. Mm-hmm. There's somebody who's got power, and there's someone who doesn't have power, and this person's taking advantage of this person. Yeah. So the same thing that's going on in the story with David and Bathsheba. Oh yeah. Right. <laughs> it's crazy. So let's talk about let's talk about these characters in this story a little bit. When I look at David, I think David is showing classic signs of depression. Oh yeah. Do you see that? Uh huh. So he gets he gets up. It says he gets up out of bed in the evening. Whoa, whoa, whoa. That's got to be a marker for he was in, what, what does that mean? It means he's been in bed all afternoon. Mm-hmm. Now he gets up in the evening. So there's something going on there. There's something like, ah, oh, I'm not getting out of bed. He's, <clears throat> he, I'm getting choked up just thinking about the story. <laughs> he's isolating himself. Yeah. Right? So what does that look like from your perspective? I think in isolation, we can go one of two ways. You know, David, if you looked at his life up to this point, he's had all these high moments of where God's led him like in battle and um, escaping these crazy situations. And it's kind of like he has a lull. And in this quiet space, I feel sometimes you can get these bad thoughts. And especially when God's not inserted in what you're thinking, they can go pretty negative spaces, you know? Um, I know that's where I go. Sure. If, yeah. There's a spiritual discipline called... um, uh, solitude. And it's where, we, it, it's where we intentionally get away for a while and we go, I'm just going to separate myself. I'm going to seek God out in this quiet space. It's just mm-hmm. God and me. And we go, that's really healthy. Mm-hmm. But this other space we go to is called isolating ourselves. And sometimes, and some of us are more prone to it than others, but sometimes we isolate ourselves from others and we, and we kind of get into our own headspace. Mm-hmm. And I think David's hanging out in his own headspace yeah. at this point. And that's point. why connection is so key. Mm-hmm. It's so key 
for when you are starting to think these thoughts that are so negative that you have someone that you can go to and say, hey, am I off base here? And they can be like, yes, yes, you are. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah. so here's David, and he's, he's kind of, de- I think he's depressed, and he's isolating himself. He's making some bad choices up on the rooftop of mm-hmm. his house. And sometimes when, when we're in those spaces, we just think it's about us. It's like, it's, it's my life, I'm going to do what I want to do, and we talk ourselves down these paths and into these stories where we go, this will be okay. But you did a great job of pointing out that there's other people involved in the story than just David mm-hmm. or just David and Bathsheba. When I typically think of the story, I think of three characters, David, Bathsheba, and Uriah, right? And everyone else, I don't really pay much attention to them, but there's some other characters in the story that really matter. So you talked about uh, Eliam. Mm-hmm. And uh, who's that? The daddy. The daddy. (laughs) And he's one of David's mighty men. He's like one of David's closest soldiers, closest associates. And he's the father of Bathsheba. Yeah. And so he's like doing this to his girl. Yeah. And so how's that going to (laughs) go? It's not going to go good. Then there's this other character because grandpa's in the story too. He is. I, I mean, that was something when doing my research, research that I was like, oh my gosh, there's so much more. I wish we could go more into this. That's why we encourage you to keep reading into these scriptures because you find out that um, he's a close advisor to David. Like he's close to him. Yeah. He tells him things he should do. <laughs> yeah. Is it, here's a character. His name is Ahithophel, which... We don't name our daughters Bathsheba, yeah. and we don't name our sons Ahithophel, I don't, because it's hard to say. But Ahithophel, we don't even hear about him until after this whole thing goes down with David and Bathsheba. But it turns out he's one of David's most trusted advisors. And he is so angry at David for what has happened with his granddaughter that he actually, when David's son Absalom rebels against the king, Ahithophel goes and hires on with Absalom and says, I will be your advisor now. And you can go, I'm not, we're not going to talk about this part of the story, mm-hmm. but you can go read that story and find out the things that he advised Absalom to do to his father. Horrible things. But it comes out of the heart of a grandfather who's grieving for his granddaughter. Yeah, and you start putting that stuff together in the story, and you go, wow, there's a lot of human carnage mm-hmm. in this story. So when we get into a situation where we're like, we're making choices, we're telling ourselves certain stories like, this will be okay, it'll be all right, this will be good, it'll feel good, at least in the moment, we start telling ourselves those stories and we forget all the people that are networked with us, that are important to us, that are going to be slammed by this decision. Well, it's kind of, you know, you know the thing where it says, you you will have no other gods before me. It's a way of making ourselves a god. Mm -hmm. We're caring about us and what we want with no awareness of the other people. You're like in this tunnel vision, this tunnel focus of like, it's me and where I'm going and how can I cover this up to make me look better, not even considering what this is doing to other people. Yeah, so let's talk about the (laughs) cover-up. How does that work? Yeah. Do you guys ever, have you ever heard about anybody covering something up? They did something bad and they covered it up? Any public officials ever? Anything recently, maybe? (laughs) (laughs) Anything in my whole, I mean, all the time. People are covering stuff up all the time. And somehow we think that's going to work. Why do we think that? Yeah, I I think the biggest thing is you think that you're going to hurt them more. I honestly think people sometimes think, oh, oh, they knew I'm going to hurt them more. So I'm not going to say this because I could hurt them more when actually you're you're hurting them more by not doing it. (laughs) Oh, that's fascinating. I think they think they're going to hurt themselves more. 
Mm. I'm, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not telling you this because if I can do a good job covering this up, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to skate away. I'm going to be okay. And I think David, you know, he's got, he brings in Uriah. He's like, go, you know, go be with your wife. It's going to be a nice evening. You know, next night, oh, here's some wine. It's going to be a nice mm-hmm. evening. And he's like, if I can cover this up, no one's going to know. And I'm going to be fine. It's all self-preservation. And of course, the challenge is darkness lies to us. Right, it's a, the, the problem with cover-up is you're trying to put it in the dark. Like, I'll just, I'll just bury it in the dark. Mm-hmm. But darkness lies to us. So we try and cover it up, and we always fail. And it always comes out. So I'm always intrigued by David, because when he it, when it finally gets to a place where he goes, uh, uh, thanks, Nathan, thanks for showing up and telling me I'm the, I'm the one. Like, you're, you're the man. It's like, oh, thanks for that. I don't know how he couldn't say anything either, because... If you read the specifics of what Nathan says, if I were David, I would have been like, how do you know every single specific thing? Yeah. <laughs> Only God could know. Yeah, you know? he knew everything. And he brings it up. And finally, David goes, and I, and I believe this is why David is called a man after God's own heart. He's mm-hmm. not a man after God's own heart because he's always righteous. Mm-hmm. He's a man after God's own heart because when this thing gets into his soul, he realizes, I've got to, I've got to tell. I've got to acknowledge it. I've got to confess this i got to own it publicly. And there's, man, if, that's a, if we could lean into something through this story to lean into confession mm. before we get busted, to have a practice of confession before it comes out is such a healthy, God-honoring, righteous place to live. We don't do it because we're worried about ourselves. When actually it's one of the most healing things you can do. Because yeah. sometimes think, people think, I think, Oh, I have to say it out loud. Like, I've already gone to God about it, you know? He knows. But yeah, he forgives you for that. But he wants you to say it out. One, if it's hurt someone, that's why you need to confess it. But two, um, there's this burden you're carrying where you're not free. And Satan's going to use that to just keep reminding you, making you feel shame. Mm -hmm. Where God's like, you are free from this. You need to say it out loud so you can know you're free from it. Yeah. The earlier we practice confession, Mm -hmm. the more healthy we'll be. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't mean healthy like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm, I ran t- six miles today. I mean like healthy because my spirit is whole. The sooner we confess it. This is why I believe why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, he gives a series of things where he says, you've heard this, but I say this to you. So in verse 27, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that every man who looks at a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it's better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of the parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And what Jesus is describing is the, is the progression of darkness. So the, so the darkness starts in our head. Mm-hmm. And he's like, if you could confess it here... You'll, you'll be healthy. You'll, you'll stop. You'll stop going down that road. Man, you get, you get stuff going on in your head here, and you're married, go tell your wife, I got stuff going on here. Because yeah. you, you tell her that like once or twice, you, you're going to stop. Or, or she's going to take you out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, something, it's going to stop. Some way it's going to stop, Some right? Way. But then Jesus says, look, if your eye makes you stumble, like the act hasn't happened, the act of darkness hasn't happened yet, but the look of darkness has. He goes, if you can stop it right there, if you can confess it right there, you're going to put an end to that. You're going to live more healthy. And he goes, and if it gets to the place where you have action, you acted on this thought that you had, then stop it right there and confess it right there. It's a huge 
strategy that Jesus lays out. It is, and again, he's trying to help us from hurting ourselves more and others more. Yeah. 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 Let's, uh, let's do some stuff on the, on the like, corrective side, the redemptive side. How do we protect ourselves? How do we protect our marriages? How do we, and if you're not married, how do I protect my soul in the midst of uh, these temptations that come? Let's talk about the, the, um, act, like the actively engaged side. Yeah. Okay? What do you, like, what do you do? What are, what are some tools to live righteously when you're in power situations or when you got these stories you're, you're playing out in your mind? I know that's something that my husband and I do. I mean, I work right now in leadership, and I'm the only woman. I'm surrounded by men. And so some of the things I do just to create safeguards, I like to say, or boundaries, is one, I create relationships with their wives because I want them to feel safe of me, <laughs> knowing we do off-sites. We go tri- to trips where we're planning, and there's an overnight. And that, as a, I know when my husband does that, and if there's women around, freaks me out. And so I want them to know in every way that their husbands are safe around me. And then also, whenever I go, say I go out to lunch with two of the guys, we're talking about stuff, we're just hanging out, I let my husband know I'm going with them. I say, hey, we're going here, we're doing this. And if he feels uncomfortable, then I'll say, hey, I'm not going to go, or... I'm going to drive separately. It's, it's, it comes down to, I think, Jesus' model is what my husband needs over what I need mm. to feel comfortable, you know? And he does the same with me. Yeah, that's a great perspective. It's about the other. Mm-hmm. It's not about me. It's about the other. How do I care for and love and honor my other? Yeah, and, I, and a resource, if you're looking for a resource, like, to figure out, because I think every relationship's different in what you guys, insecurities we may feel or things we've gone through in our life. There's a book called Boundaries in Marriage by Cloud and Townsend that's really helpful, and you could go through it with your spouse, but honestly, it's a book if your spouse isn't willing to go through, because I've been in those situations too, that really help you out personally, even if they didn't read it. So I'd encourage you to read that. Yeah. One of the things that I've done, talking, just talking about confession and how that whole confession process works, I heard it from a friend of mine years ago. He was leading a conference on how to have uh, emotional and mental uh, spiritual purity in his life. And he said, here's, here's one of the things you can do. And this is good, male, female, whatever. <clears throat> Make a list. Sit down. Actually, write, I wrote mine down. I wrote it out by hand. I made a list. Make a list of everyone you would have to tell if you went down a road like David went down. I'm like, man, I didn't, I didn't have to get very far down my list before I went, oh, this is a losing proposition. <laughs> I do not want to tell the people on this list. So I, I made my list. First, one on, first name on my list is my wife. If I go down a road like David went down, mm-hmm. I've got, I have to tell my wife. Like, oh, that would kill her. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do that. And then my next person on my list is my firstborn, my oldest daughter. Oh. I don't want to tell my daughter, this is what I did. My next one is my, my, my middle child, my son. I've got, oh, I've got to tell my son. I don't want to tell my son because I don't want my son thinking that stuff about his dad. Mm. Then I have to tell my baby daughter. Oh. <laughs> it's like, okay, see where this is going? Then I have to tell my mother-in-law. <laughs> Ooh, that's not going to be good. And then, now my father-in-law's passed, but if my father-in-law was living, he, I'd have to tell him. Then I would have passed. And if he let me live, I'd have to tell my dad. You know, it's like, it, it just goes on. And, after, and, and somewhere in the journey, I got to tell you guys. And so would you. You go, no, I'm not the pastor. I don't have to tell the church. It's, yes, you do. I'm going to make you. Oh, that didn't go over. <laughs> 
you know what? You got to tell your small group. You got to tell people at work. You got to tell, you got, because your life's going to be disrupted. It's going to be turned upside down. Now you got to talk about it. Now it's forced confession. Mm-hmm. And how much better if you get on the front side of that and you go, I'm not going to do forced confession. I'm going to talk about it early on. Mm-hmm. And my list, my list has helped me to process that anytime those David thoughts get in my head. And I think sometimes we think, Oh, it's so uncomfortable. I'd rather just do the easy route. But I've always looked at when things are uncomfortable or hard, if we do that up front, it ends up making it easy in the end. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So it turns it around a bit. Well, yeah. I think when, when, there's, when there's a temptation to cover up, mm-hmm. like, let's say I've already done something, mm-hmm. and now I'm going to try and cover it up. When that thought comes into your head, if you can force yourself to go, I'm trying to cover this up. <laughs> Why? Because mm-hmm. I don't want to pay the consequences. Yeah. And yet when I, when I take the lid off, I take the cover off, and I go, okay, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. I am protecting, I'm preserving life. I'm preserving my life. I'm preserving my family's life. I'm preserving life. That's a gift. And if we just go down one more level, like into the deepness, it comes down just to brokenness. We're broken about something, and it's coming out in an unhealthy way. Yeah. And we end up hurting more people. Yeah. But one thing I just want to interject in there is we have lay counselors here, and these are counselors mm. who use God's word to help guide you out of areas that you may be having a hard time with, like isolation or depression or just a scenario that's like, I don't know how to get out of this. We have people here who are willing to sit and talk with you. And if you want that, you can email me. You can look for it on our website. But we have some great people that help you with that. Yeah. We have a lot of people in our church who have been through and are, and are in recovery processes mm-hmm. in their lives. And um, we have Higher Power that meets on Friday evenings yeah. over in the block. Fantastic help for this. But I learned something from my recovery friends years ago, too, that has been helpful to me. They have this little acronym called HALT. Do you know this one? When the temptations begin to come into your life, uh, figure out why you're about to give into it b- mm-hmm. by using these, these four words. HALT. Uh, am I hungry? angry, lonely, or tired. See, those are the places where I'm most vulnerable to making bad decisions, where I'm going to make a David Bathsheba mm-hmm. type decision. Am I hungry? Well, eat a Snickers bar, man. You're, you're <laughs> bad when you're, you know, when you're hungry. You're bad. Uh, or am I angry? Something has my, has my wife made me angry, or have I allowed something to make mm-hmm. me angry in that relationship or with my kids or at work or whatever the thing is? Am I lonely? Where have I isolated myself yeah. so that, it has, that I've become lonely? How do I fix that loneliness piece to fix the rest of this piece? Or am I tired? We live our lives today tired, and those, that fatigue factor sets us up for disaster. It's mm. true. Anything else you want to add in? No, I think... I just... I would say that if you're someone who has been on the end of... Um, power was forced on you in a way where you were sexually abused in some way and you've been holding on to it, um, come talk to one of us, me. Um, we have some great women on staff um, because you can feel this shame. I think Satan can also take something that we had no control over and make you feel like you're wrong in it and you're not. You're not at all. And so I would just say, um, sometimes that's another reason to say it out loud, is to know you're not holding that burden by yourself. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Thanks, Alicia.